Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and my guest this week, Kanisha Bethay and Regina Townsend. Let's get back into our conversation surrounding infertility in the African-American community. I think we also need to have a talk about terminology because Regina, when you said single mothers by choice, oh gosh, that just set me because I hate that term and then having to go through single mother by choice counseling like there's something yeah. wrong with you mm. oh it oh and geriatric pregnancy oh yeah oh, advanced so maternal age yes. <laughs> advanced maternal age was the bane of my because they go from telling you you're so young you're so young when i was first mm. trying to figure out what was going on they were like well you're so young you're only 30 and then all of a sudden it was like well at 35 Advanced mm-hmm. maternal. It's a geriatric pregnancy. Is this that mm-hmm. is? So I totally understand. And I think the single moms by choice phrase and terminology, it it it's a misnomer because for many people, it wasn't my choice. That wasn't the choice. This is what this is how it happened. This ain't my choice. This is what I'm gonna do. <laughs> the choice. This is just what I'm finna do. I didn't intend for this. So don't don't put choice on it because there be very clear. There was not a lot of choice that I had. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I totally understand. Yes, yes. And I I think that that's important, too, to draw the connection between what were we told growing up, right, about go to school, don't get pregnant, get your degrees I don't care how long it takes, you know, and then and then get married as though it's like you push a button and your husband just supposed to walk through the door. <laughs> you know, um, a whole nother episode will be questions we didn't ask about, you know, this dating world and and how to find your partner and and what's going on with our with our brothers and men out here that's you know, and, and women that is making it difficult for us to partner. But and why are so many people choosing not to partner permanently, but just um, in, a, in a different way? I'll just say that. Um, and then when you get to the other side of the degrees and the career and the 401k and, and, and the seniority and enough insurance and savings to be able to, you know, reasonably have and support yourself and a child, whether or not that man is there or not, that's one thing. And then the other part is, well, can I even have a baby by this point? Right. And so what's going on with these expectations and the timing of our expectations, in addition to what's going on with our bodies, there's the biological side, there's the genetic side, there's the environmental and social side, right? So, you know, there are things that happen to our bodies. There are things that happen to us in life. You know, we talked about stress, you know, genetically, we talk about um, generational stress, you know, and trauma and how that affects our ability to do a lot of different things. But I would imagine it definitely affects our ability to reproduce. Um, So I think it's important for us to one of the reasons why I started out with the questions of how did you grow up and what were the messages that you were told? Because now we're on the back end. You checked all the boxes and people are guilting you about having a baby at this stage of your life unpartnered. And it's like, but you saw them brothers I was dating. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> that I brought home or the ones I was talking about who didn't even make it to the front door, you know, what have you. Um, it wasn't that people are not trying to partner and find long lasting love and relationship, but we also are at a phase where we know that we're trying to avoid certain types of trauma to be baseline in our families. And so therefore we have to make decisions about, am I going to pursue this relationship so that I can be married and have a child within a traumatic, unhealthy, you know, um, environment, or do I let that person go move on? And hopefully maybe I might find somebody along the way but I still want to have this baby, mm -hmm. you know? And so we have lots of different questions that we have not asked or, um, or that we haven't pushed up against in narratives that are out there. Um, one of the questions that I want to ask is um, I want to go back to patient provider communication. Cause like I said, this is one of my um, soap boxes, if you will, how can providers assure that they and their staff are ready and able to provide the best care possible for African-American women? What are some of the things that they can do other than listen to this podcast? Well, I, for me, I will say, um, I think that many doctors aren't aware and that it's sometimes it is a choice to not be aware. <laughs> Mm. Um, because it can be as simple as what magazines are in your waiting room. Mm -hmm. When I walk in here and I don't ever see anything that has a black face on it, I automatically think I'm not welcome. And it seems like a ridiculous thing when you say this to them, they go, oh, I didn't think about that. But it really does. When you go into a space and there is nothing reflective of you from the art to the what's on, what's playing on the TV to what's what's in the waiting room to read, it can feel like, oh, well, then they they set this up for who they want to see. And since this doesn't reflect me, I'm not who they want to see here. It's also your staff. In many cases, I've I've spoken to people who have been lovely about their doctor, but could not stand the staff and the way that they were spoken to on the phone or the way that the triage was handled or the way that the nurse, the receptionist was. All of those things add to patient care experiences. And I don't think that doctors often realize it or recognize it. And so when you're going somewhere with especially fertility, which is so, first of all, it's expensive. Second of all, it's emotionally taxing and you're dealing with all of that. And then you got somebody on the phone that's rude or who has no cultural competency um, and you can tell by the way they're speaking to you. It can really make an already taxing experience feel just that much more taxing. Um, I also think that when it comes to our general doctors, one of the things that kind of came to mind as you were speaking was that we also don't include the conversation of fertility preservation. And mm -hmm. so when you look at the fact that our white counterparts have often had a conversation with their doctor that was along the lines of, do you want to get pregnant in the future? And if so, have you discussed or decided or thought about 
perhaps freezing your eggs. That conversation is not often posed to us. And so we don't even know that that's an option. And then we get to a certain point and it's like, oh, I could have done that when I was going towards those degrees. I could have done that when I needed to. And you didn't tell me. You feel lied to. You feel like somebody pulled the, the rug out from under you. So I would say making sure that your patients, regardless of what you assume about their background or their upbringing or their socioeconomic status, are receiving the same information about what treatment options are available to them, what preservation options are available to them, what questions they may need to ask you. There's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I didn't hear you ask this. Are you interested in getting pregnant in the future? Even if they came in that day to get contraceptive care, are you interested in becoming a parent in the future? Because if so, that opens this other path. It's like a choose your own adventure book. Once you say yes to that, then I know that I need to talk to you about this. But if you are only asking those questions to certain patients and not asking it to all patients, then we're instantly in an equity issue. We're instantly facing an issue. And you have to know from a cultural competency standpoint that Black people are not as comfortable when we go to the doctor. We have a historic and valid mistrust of the medical system going all the way back to slavery when we were used and experimented on, moving forward to the eugenics experiments and all of that other thing. So when we come in, we may not ask you what you think we should ask you. And so for a good doctor to be culturally competent, they need to present some of those questions outright because we're not going to know to ask them. We're not uh, historically comfortable with, with questioning doctors or, you know, some of us are, but in many cases we're like, let's get in and get out. Cause I don't want to be here anyway. I don't really trust y'all. I don't know what y'all doing. Mm -hmm. I don't know what y'all plan to do. So let me just get in and get out. So being aware of where we come from so that when we come in, you know, let me ask this and here's how I can ask it. That says a lot. That's, or just leaving space, letting us know we're not rushed, that there's time to, to talk, that we're, we're getting to know you. And the first time I went to the fertility center and we sat in a doctor's office, not exam room, but her office where the degrees are, and there were chairs and a couch. I was like, in my head, I thought, oh, this is like on TV. This is like when the white people go to the doctor and you would think that that's not a thing, but that really is how I felt like, oh, this is real doctor. <laughs> we don't often get that experience. And so mm -hmm. you really have to be aware of what we deal with and how it's different and what we're bringing into that office with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, providing context and and cultural grounding and background. And, um, you know, I'm definitely gonna turn it over to Kanisha to share her thoughts about, um, especially considering our shared uh, background in this space, you know, um, whether it's clinical trials or um, healthcare, um, community health, public health, population health, um, addressing how to help providers, how to help clinicians, um, principal investigators, how to be, uh, more um, welcoming um, to allow 
um, our full selves to be cared for um, and not to be judged or discriminated in the process. And um, I think one of the things that you talked about was, you know, it's not just one episode in our history that makes us apprehensive. It's not even necessarily the things that are in the, 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 I don't know, the, the history books that even get published. It's the things that we talk about amongst each other and our friends and our family, things that we've experienced. Um, I think one of the things that made me so passionate about patient-provider communication, medical mistrust, and all of these issues related to health equity was because of my experience um, helping to advocate for my father when he was unwell and um, dependent on the healthcare system to keep him alive. And some of the things that were said to him directly, um, some of the things that were done to him, some of the things that I witnessed, um, questions that I had to ask, um, and how it affected our family, how it affected his health, how it affected his um, self-esteem, how it even affected the way that I looked at him and how I understood the fragility of his of his life, you know? Um, and so I think it's really important that people understand, no, it's not just Tuskegee. <laughs> and it's not just the eugenics thing. Like the, the only reason why I'm able to believe that those things happened is because there's some things that also happened to me and my family that either I witnessed, I heard about, um, or some other area of life that proved to me that this is possible and that it could happen again. Um, so just to kind of turn it back over to Kanisha, what are some things that you can think of that providers should be doing and thinking about um, to make sure that themselves and their staff, I think you made a good point, Regina, that you know sometimes it's the way that that receptionist speaks to you that will either turn you on or turn you off or might make the whole difference. You might have a great you know, encounter with the doctor. But when you go out to, you know, make your appointment at the end, that person can mess it up for you, you know, and have you questioning whether or not you're in the right place. So what are some things that you um, would suggest, you know, in, in this regard, especially as it relates to the sensitivity, sensitive nature of dealing with infertility in the African-American community? Well, definitely echo, um, you know, many of the strategies and things that uh, Regina shared. Um, but just to add to that, I definitely feel like implicit bias um, trainings should be incorporated often, mm -hmm. <laughs> not just once, but often. Mm -hmm. um, because fertility clinics in themselves is specialized care. Um, so this is even outside of the norm of a traditional clinic office and the patients that they see on an ongoing basis. We were already talking about the numbers and in terms of, you know, the, the few black women um, that have access to be able to go to fertility clinics and, and have that type of care. So just imagine the limitation that they have with seeing people like mm -hmm. me that walk, that walk through the door. Um, and so with that, you know, they already have their biases in mm -hmm. place um, and they put it on front street, as Regina said, like, with the, with the people at the reception is this. Every time I go to the clinic, I am always the only Black woman that I see. Mm -hmm. I, I've yet to see. Oh, I'm sorry. I did see one other Black woman who's a patient. Um, and we did kind of give each other like that look. Um, as we were sit, yes, as we were sitting in the, um, in the waiting room. But beyond those doors, no one that looks like me. I have seen other women of color. 
Um, but again, their experience is, is vastly different than ours. Mm -hmm. Um, also because fertility clinics, and I'm not saying they don't care, um, because they do in most cases, but it's about money. This is a, a huge money-making business. Mm -hmm. um, and so to be able to take on the numbers of folk that are coming through those doors, particularly with my clinic, um, you know, most healthcare institutions now have some type of my chart or portal mm -hmm. um, that they utilize for communication. And so unfortunately with this place, that seems to be their primary go-to is the portal. When you're in front, you better ask all the questions that you can when you're face to face, because outside of your your appointments, it's like an act of Congress to be able to get through on the phone to someone. So your portal is the only way of communicating. And then, you know, with email, there are so many inferences that can be made going back and forth with email. Also, um, technology has lent its hand. So now that you can do you know, like Zoom appointments and things of that nature. And I'll just share an experience where um, it was time for me to start my um, my cycling, um, being on the regiment of um, estrogen and taking the progesterone shots um, to prepare my, my uterus for this specific test that they wanted to do. Um, and so I was so excited to know that I was going to be talking to a black female nurse. Oh I was pumped up. I was like, yes, finally, you know, going to have somebody. Well, first thing um, I get on, I get ready to get on, on my appointment. And I realize that in the portal or nowhere else in email is the actual link for, you know, the, the um, Zoom, mm -hmm. Zoom meeting. And I'm sorry, they use Microsoft Teams. So the, for the team meeting. And so then I'm panicking because, you you know, it's so hard to get these appointments. These mm -hmm. appointments are like gold. You don't miss them for anything. Um, and so I, I'm calling the, the clinic like crazy, like, please, someone answer the phone um, so that I can get this information. So then I start blowing up the portal. You know, I need someone. I don't have the link. Can someone please share this information? And I don't know if that in itself maybe irked her uh, because she made that mistake and now it was called out. Um, mm -hmm. But then finally, when she sent the link and then we get on, she made it like it was my fault. Mm -hmm. So the, the appointment from the giddy up was kind of starting off crazy. You know, I'm happy that I'm finally getting to this process because that means I'm moving on in the process. And then we have this this kind of situation that takes place. So I know you can't um, I know you can't um, make 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 it sure that the staff maybe have had fertility issues themselves. But I think that if these people that are on the other side of the door, the window, um, you know, at the bed table, whatever you are, have gone through this themselves, I think that that would open their eyes up to where the person sitting on the other side may be and what they may be feeling. Mm -hmm. And that in itself, I think, could improve the relationship and communication that takes place at these um, um, within these clinics. And it's funny, Regina said when she sat down in an office, I still have yet, I've not made it to an office. I'm either in the waiting room mm -hmm. or I'm actually in the exam, uh, exam room. Mm -hmm. Or um, of course, you know, you're giving blood like in you the know, there's no tomorrow, mm -hmm. so in the lab itself. Uh, but yeah, I've never made it to an office. I've walked past the offices, but I've never sat down in an office. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that happens, I don't know much, much further along, maybe after you get pregnant. I don't know. Mm. Mm. 
But I think you brought up a very good point about how sometimes some of us what in the healthcare system are not as sensitive to us um, as patients when it comes to providing care. And so it's not, we're not saying it's all on white people all the time. Um, but sometimes we have a lot of times that I'll hear that it is us and it, and that's partially the other half of why we have to have these conversations because mm-hmm. if culturally we have misconceptions about what fertility is and we think that we're not supposed to be there then if we even work there we like girl what you doing here girl take this mm-hmm. thing get out and we can be too familiar and not mm. treat people like they need and deserve to be treated because we could be like girl now you know we don't need to be doing this with these white people doing but okay and sometimes that in and of itself while it may be to be setting a standard of you know commonality it's unprofessional and it's also yeah. not helpful at all and so sometimes it is definitely us because we too don't know well I never see no black people come here. So I don't know how to talk to people who look like me who show up in the space that's my professional space. I don't mm-hmm. know how to do that. So it's very important. Like he said, the implicit bias, a lot of times we need implicit bias training too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need it also. We have our own assumptions and our own ideas about what it means to be black and what it means um, to be in these spaces. And so until we get clear on that, we're going to constantly butt up against one another as well. Yes, 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 yes. So I'm going to start to wrap up. Um, but I do want to state, you know, again, I always believe in Sankofa. You look back and you see and understand a little bit more about how it is, you're where you're at and where you're going. And I think one of the pieces that you brought up, Regina, has about, you know, how we treat each other and our perceptions of each other as it relates to fertility. You know, in this country, when African people were enslaved, a lot of our value was tied to our ability to reproduce. And our value to reproduce was not necessarily based on coupling, marriage, family, or anything. It was, can you lay down with a man and have sex and then that sex produce a pregnancy that runs, it don't even necessarily have to be full-time, just as long as the baby come out alive and healthy, that we can then sell to someone else or put to work, right? So a lot of what this country did to our ancestors was to monetize our ability to reproduce. So this idea of, you know, what are you doing here? You know, um, we're not thinking, I think some of the people that are there are automatically thinking about the fact that the way we survived was through our ability to reproduce, right? And so then also there's something latent there that doesn't, and maybe that is the latent message, mm-hmm. but I think the, the message in that is, the question is that that person is also not asking them is why aren't there more Black women in this waiting room? Why aren't there more Black men in this waiting room? If there are all these, you know, if all of our bodies are made to reproduce and the only people that I'm seeing coming through these doors are non-Black people, 
what is going on that's creating a barrier, keeping Black people from getting the care they need? So the last question I'm going to ask before we um, end is how can our community, family, and friends support men and women that are facing um, infertility? What are some things that you would like to see more of in our community? Well, I would say for me, one of the biggest things that we need to be doing is continuing to have conversations, mm -hmm. um, intergenerational conversations, because often once I start talking, I find out, oh, my great aunt had this and oh, my auntie had that and oh, my cousin dealt with this. And it's also important for my nieces who are 15 and 12 to understand your period is not supposed to be painful. It's not supposed to last that long. What does a period actually mean? What does it actually do? Because you can have a period and not have fertility. You can have, uh, th there are things that I learned. There are people who, you know, MRKH, and I don't want to say it wrong, the, the actual terminology, but those are people who don't have a vaginal canal. Now, how would you even know that? You know, if these conversations don't happen, you don't even know that that's something that could exist. So we have to keep having these conversations um, and really being comfortable with saying what it is that we want for ourselves and allowing each other to have that right, allowing each other to have that right and say, this is what I want. Um, and then instead of trying to figure it out for you or placing my assumptions on you, saying, how can I help? What do you need? I'm just here to listen. That's okay that you feel that way. You know, those kind of answers rather than, well, you know what you should do. And you know what we did. And you know, maybe if you just, maybe if you just is a pain in the butt answer to so many questions and comments. Maybe if you just is never the right answer. So instead, let the person lead. Let the person tell you what they need, what the what they're going through, what their experience is. Because two infertility, two people dealing with infertility could sit down together and have two completely different experiences. So letting the person tell you what it is that they need, what it is that they're experiencing, what it is that they would like to see happen, and then going from there, as opposed to allowing these these myths, stereotypes, assumptions, all of that to continue to permeate because that just adds to the stress. It just adds to the, the weight of this whole thing. Infertility is so much bigger than just babies. It's so much mm -hmm. bigger than just babies. And if we don't look at it that way, um, we'll continue to minimize it. We'll continue to minimize people's heart and how they're feeling. And that's a big part of this whole thing is how you're feeling, how your mental health is affected, how your finances are affected, mm -hmm. how your self-worth and self-confidence is affected. So looking at it as a full and complete issue that is unique to each individual person or couple and allowing them to set the standard for what they need and how they'd like to move forward. Okay, so yes, I agree. These conversations are so important. And so, Naisha, I'm so proud of you um, for creating this platform to have these conversations and even inviting me to be a part of these conversations. Um, and, and I need to pat myself on the back because, you know, 
as I said before, I am one that uh, pretty much keeps my business to me um, at a small circle. Um, but going through this process, I am learning and I know that having these conversations and telling my story um, will help others who may be going through, you know, similar, who may be going along a similar path. Also, I will say, um, you know, my family, my family has been amazing um, and they have always been my backbone. But I think this this particular journey that I'm going through has been challenging for them to understand mm -hmm. as well, um, because I think many had just come to the point, well, she's her age now. So it's just not going to happen for her. And she's just not going to have no kids. Um, and so they make little sidebar com um, comments and maybe little jokes here and there on the mm -hmm. side, not not meaning to be hurtful. Um, but for someone who is, you know, dealing with these things and in this reality, it can come off as hurtful. Um, and so one of the things that I know I've done or that I've been doing is as I talk to younger women and I mentor younger women, you know, the questions that we heard coming up and oftentimes is when you going to get married, when you go have that baby, when you going, you know, when you gone. Um, instead of asking those questions, um, I think we should reframe the conversation to, you know, what do you want? You know, mm -hmm. what do you see as your future goals? Um, what are your wants? What are your desires? Um, and then, you know, help people get to that point, you know, be able to make decisions or give them access to resources so that they can make whatever it is that they envision for themselves a reality. So I always talk to younger women, um, black women in particular, you know, about finding out about their reproductive health, learning more about their reproductive health and looking into egg freezing. If there's something that if they know they're single now, um, they're not they're not planning to have a baby now. But just know as you age, unfortunately, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Our options, you know, may change uh, from a reproductive health standpoint. But there are things that you can do. There are um, decisions that you can make now that will allow you to, um, you know, have that family or that baby that you've always wanted later. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, ladies, so much for this full and rich conversation. I am so proud that you all agreed to participate in this conversation with me. Um, before we leave, though, I have to share um, some resources about organizations that are offering um, both emotional, um, mental, and financial help in the form of fertility grants um, and a variety of other things. And one of those organizations, of course, drum roll, is the Broken Brown Egg um, website, the, T-H-E, Broken, B-R-O-K-E-N, Brown, just like the color, B-R-O-W-N, egg.org. Um, Regina, would you like to say anything special about your organization? Sure. So it, it started as a blog, as I mentioned earlier, um, and it grew into um, what is a fully tax exempt nonprofit organization that's focused on advocating for empowering and informing people about infertility, and it has an emphasis on the Black experience of it. So I keep my blog there because I want people to understand my personal story, but I also have a running list of resources, 
funding resources, Black women and, and men who are serving in the reproductive health industry um, as physicians and clinicians. There's also some historical perspective there. So you can look at um, Black celebrities and, and people in history who've experienced fertility issues or who pursued adoption, just so that you have some cultural context um, and, and a sense of connection. And I try my best to make it a space where I can also encourage people to self-advocate um, and to feel empowered to be the ones when I get requests from journalists or authors and they're looking or researchers who are looking for people of color and that experience, I do empowerment opportunities where I share to our online support group and community so that they can have their voice heard also, because it's not about me, it's about us. And so I welcome anyone who is looking for a community or who is looking for just a space to laugh or um, find some understanding and reflection to join me there or on Instagram um, or on Facebook. All right. And what's your Instagram and Facebook? Um, my Instagram is Broken Brown Egg and my Facebook is The Broken Brown Egg. And you can also um, find my book on either of those. And that tells my full and complete story also with some cultural context. I've also got fun things to do in the waiting room to kind of keep your mind off of it. Um, and even some clapbacks for those relatives who do hit you with the what you waiting on conversation so that you have some things to say in response. Wonderful, wonderful. So fortunately, uh, Regina Townsend is not the only one in this fight. She is the one that's here with us today. But I also want to shout out Fertility for Colored Girls. That's fertilityforcoloredgirls.org. There's also the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. Blackmamasmatter.org is their website. We also have the Sister Girl Foundation, sister-girl.org. You can find um, love and care and support at the Tina Q. Cade Foundation, Cade, C-A-D-E, foundation.org. So I just want to, um, again, tell my guests, thank you so much for being here on our first series and episode on infertility in the African-American community. Um, and I want to tell our audience to anticipate the next podcast series on a new health equity topic on questions you didn't ask. Thank you again, everyone, and we look forward to hearing from you again soon.